This is a Faith FM podcast. You're listening to The Faith Experiment with Robbie Bergen, right across Australia, right here on Faith FM. Hello there, and thanks again for joining me once again. I'm Robbie Bergen, and you're listening to The Faith Experiment, and this is episode number 24, and I'm calling this episode The Impact of Biblical Hermeneutics. Now, in this episode, once again, I've prepared a little e-guide which will help put together a summary on today's topic for you. So stick around to get to today's code word during the show. You'll need to text that code word to 04888 So save that number in your phone, 04888 and wait for today's code word. Now, if you are joining me for the first time, the faith experiment is about putting faith into practice. And so far... I've been sharing with you my own personal journey of faith and how I went from a non-believer to a faith experimenter. And over the last few episodes, we've been exploring this theme of Bible study. And on this episode, we're going to be looking at the importance of getting biblical interpretation right. So stick around because this episode, we're going to explore what I'm calling biblical hermeneutics. But before we get started, let's do a quick recap of what we've covered so far when looking at this theme of Bible study. We've looked at what the purpose of the Bible is. We've explored the anatomy of the book of the Bible. We've looked at the process of revelation and how it came from God and is impressed upon the mind of the prophet and how the prophet uses their own words and culture and ideas and expressions to communicate that original revelation. And we've also established why the Bible has 66 books and how that the canon or the scripture was in place in the time of living apostles. We've also explored the translation methods and translation sources. And on our last episode, we looked at how the Bible contains a single storyline with seven unique chapters, all tied together with what I call the seven golden threads. Now, if you've missed any of the previous episodes and you want to catch up on some of these details, go ahead and get the Faith FM app from your app store or go to faithfm.com.au and look under the podcast section for The Faith Experiment. You can also find The Faith Experiment on all good podcasting platforms, making it easy for you to keep up to date with The Faith Experiment. And so now on today's episode, we're going to look at this topic of the impact of biblical hermeneutics. And I know, I know, I know, I know, it sounds really, really technical. And you might be tempted to think you need to have some kind of theological degree or some kind of training and being a, some kind of scholar or something in order to understand this topic. But trust me, this topic is not that hard. And you absolutely need to understand this topic. There's no question about that. And the chances are you're actually already using hermeneutics. But the question is, are you using it right? So let's get started. When you look at the Christian world today, you'll find that there are hundreds of different flavors of Christianity or what we call denominations. The World Christian Encyclopedia in 2001, they suggested that there were 33,000 different denominations in the world in 2001. And the Center for Study of Global Christianity suggests that in 2012, there were 43,000 different denominations. Now, I've shared with you before in the faith experiment that back in 2001, when I started this whole faith experiment, and I came to the realization that there was in fact a God and he wanted to be involved in my life, I, I wanted to find a place where to fellowship with God and his people. And when I did, it turned out that there were about 5,000 different denominations 
or about 33,000 different Christian denominational groups. If you missed that episode, you can go check out episode 12, which is called 5,000 Churches, on your Faith FM app or on the website under the podcasting section. Now, to be fair, the Center for Study of Global Christianity actually state that, quote, these denominations are defined in terms of being separate organizations, not separate beliefs. And if we are to look at the differences in belief, there would be much less than 40,000, end quote. And so, according to the Center for the Study of Global Christianity, these 40,000 groups can actually be divided down to six theological families. And these families are known as the Roman Catholics, the Orthodox, the Anglicans, the Protestants, the Independents, and the Marginals. So if you take any person you meet in the Christian community, and if you're able to distill down their beliefs down to the core, you would find that they would sit in one of these six theological families. Now, all of these theological families, they claim to be based upon the one and same book, the Bible. But why and how is it even possible to end up with so many differences in Christianity? Because after all, we've seen that the Bible is clear in its function and purpose. It's to testify of Jesus and to ultimately transform us. We've seen that we've got the Bible through this process of revelation from God down through inspiration to the human prophet who wrote down the words in what we now have as manuscripts. We've confirmed that there are 66 books of the Bible. We've confirmed the establishment of the canon in the time of the living apostles. We've looked at translation methods and sources, and we're confident that when we open up the Bible today, we are actually studying historically accurate revelations from God, carefully preserved down through the millennia. So how is it? that we've ended up with so many different views on the same book. Well, that's what we're going to try and deal with on this episode. Now, before we get started, you might find it useful to get the infographic that I'm going to talk about today before I've talked about it. So if you want to get the infographic before we get started, text the code word hash FE24 info, all one word, hash FE24 Info, all one word. Text that to 04 That's 04 and you will get an infographic that will show you visually what we're going to talk about next. You see, I want to take you on a whirlwind tour of what I'm calling the theological family tree. And if we look at the theological family tree, we can trace how the belief groups splintered off and formed over time. Now, for the sake of this exercise, we're going to start our theological tree with what I call the Hebrew or Jewish family. Because after all, when God spoke to Abraham and Abraham crossed over the river on his way to this promised land, he became known as a Hebrew because he crossed over the river. And later, his descendants got that label of the 12 tribes of Israel. And so we have this theological history that's all tied up in the Jewish or the Hebrew teachings. And so we can think of that today as the Old Testament being the root of this theological tree. In these roots, there is an understanding of who and what God is, what his law is, what his Sabbath is, the nature of sin, the expectation and obligations of our interpersonal relationships. We get a theology of the sanctuary system. And all of this is in the root of the family tree. And so this is our starting point for understanding the impact of biblical hermeneutics. 
Well, it's time to take a short break now, but when we come back, we're going to discover the impact of biblical hermeneutics. And don't forget to stick around for today's code word to get the e-guide on today's topic. I'll be right back after this with The Faith Experiment. You're listening to The Faith Experiment with Robbie Bergen, right across Australia, right here on Faith FM. Connect with us via text message on 04888-45311. That's 04888-45311. Or send an email to robbie at faithfm.com.au. Rugged cross on a hill long ago, hung one without guilt, without blame, and for salvation of souls, for the sins of the world. That's why my Savior. Was slain. Won't you look to the old rugged cross and see Jesus and confess his name and say, Father, forgive me. I know. I'm lost You'll be found At that old Rugged cross And from that old Rugged cross He was laid in The tomb Death over him had no claim For Jesus was raised So that all might be saved Believe and break Free from sin's chains Won't you look to Oh, rugged cross And see Jesus Confess His name And say, Father, forgive me I know that I'm lost You'll be found At that old Rugged cross
So when your yoke it is heavy, when your burden gets hard, and when it feels like all hope is lost, there's a way that is easy. There's a yoke that is light. Just follow and take up your cross. Won't you look to the old rugged cross and see Jesus and confess His name and say, Father. Forgive me. I know that I'm lost. You'll be found at that old rugged cross. Just lay your burden at the foot of that cross. The Faith Experiment with Robbie Bergen, right across Australia, right here on Faith FM. Listen live or listen later. Get the Faith FM app from your app store today. Welcome back to the Faith Experiment. I'm your host Robbie Bergen, and this is episode 24 of the Faith Experiment, and I'm calling this episode the impact of biblical hermeneutics. And coming up in today's show is the code word to get the e guide on today's topic. So before the break, I introduced you to our theological family tree. And we started by looking at the root of this tree, which we're calling the Hebrew or Jewish origins. Now, if you want to see an infographic of this family tree that I've prepared, text the code word hash fe 24 info Text hash fe 24 info to 4 453 That's 4 453 And the SMS bot will send you a link to an infographic which will help visualize this theological family tree. So, back to our theological family tree. In 34 AD, there was a split from the Jewish roots, and this new branch became known as Christianity. This was the start of a new theological family tree. And the main reason for this split was because of their theological differences of who Messiah or the Christ was. The Christians saw that all the prophecies of the Old Testament pointed to a sacrificial Messiah, a Lamb of God, and the Christians saw that this was Jesus. While the Jewish people rejected that interpretation, they saw that the Old Testament prophecies were pointing to a Messiah who would come as a conquering king, breaking the Roman yoke from off the Jewish neck. And so these Christians held to the same beliefs as the Jews with only but a major theological difference being that of the understanding of the Messiah and the fulfillment of that being Jesus Christ. So the next theological shift took place around 538 AD. This was when the Bishop of Rome was given all the power by Emperor Justinian. And in this union of church and state, 
that saw the ultimate end of the Imperial Roman Empire and the formation of what became known as the Holy Roman Empire, we see a creation of now two flavors of Christianity. There were those who were a part of this new church-state system and those who rejected the idea that the church should be controlling the state. And these two views led to an ultimate war, which we know now as the Dark Ages or the Papal Persecutions. Again, a theological difference was at the root of this split. The next major split took place in 1053 AD, and this split has become known today as the Great Schism of 1053. This was the split when the East and the West of the Holy Roman Empire split. The split led to the creation of the Greek Orthodox in the East and the Roman Catholic Church in the West. You see, the East, or the Greek Orthodox, they didn't believe that one man should be in control of the church. They believed it should be a council, whereas in the West, they said that the Pope was God's representative on earth. There was also theological differences on the teaching of an Eucharist, and also the date for Easter. These all served as enough theological differences to create a new tree. Then in 1517, Martin Luther, who was a Catholic theologian, he discovered a major theological difference regarding the method of salvation between what the Roman Church was teaching and what the Bible actually taught. And he had hoped to reform the Church's belief so that it would ultimately be in harmony with the Bible. But, as we know from history, that failed. And instead, this led to the start of a great Protestant Reformation and the establishment of the Lutheran Church. Again, all due to theological differences. Next, in 1525, a new branch began called the Anabaptists. They held to exactly what Martin Luther believed and the Lutherans, but they saw in Scripture that you actually had to be a believer in order to be baptized and not just christened as a child. And while the Lutherans reject this, the Anabaptists held on to it, and this created another split with the Anabaptists, becoming the new branch in the family tree. And in 1534, a new split occurred in the Roman Church family, this time in England. And this was over the theological view of divorce and remarriage. This split resulted in the formation of the Anglican Church, identical to the Roman Church, but with just enough theological difference to create a new branch in the tree. And then in 1536, out of the Lutherans, came another branch called the Calvinists. The Calvinists saw that even though we're saved by faith in grace alone, that there was biblical evidence that suggested that once being saved, we needed to live holy lives. They also taught that being saved and being lost were predestinated. And this was enough of a theological difference to create yet another branch in this tree. And then in 1607, a group which became known as the Baptist came out of Calvinists over the issue of baptism, similar to the Anabaptists, but these were mostly in the New World or the Americas. And a few years later, in 1671, the Seventh-day Baptists came out of the Baptist family tree. They held to everything the Baptists taught, but they arrived at a different theological position on the keeping of the Seventh-day Sabbath than their Baptist friends did. And so all of these theological differences served as enough of a difference to create new family trees. Then in the 1630s, the Congregationalists broke away from the Calvinists. 
and in 1693, the Amish broke away from the Anabaptists after they arrived in the United States. Their main difference was due to their theological position that technology was of the devil. And so even today, you can find the Amish still using the exact same technology they had when they arrived in the United States. And then in 1738, out of the teachings of John Wesley, came the belief that there was a need to revive the Anglican Church in England and that there was a need for transformation of Christian life. They desired to bring the Reformation into the Church of England, but, as history tells us once again, that didn't work. And so came forth another family called the Methodist Church. Next, the year 1801 saw a split from the Baptist Church, a group who called themselves the Church of Christ. They were similar enough to the Baptists, but enough difference to start a new family tree. And then, in 1830s, out of the Congregationalists, out of the Baptists, out of the Seventh-day Baptists, and out of the Methodists came a group called the Adventists. And their main difference was in regard to the timing of Jesus' return. You see, all the churches of the day taught that Jesus would only come back a second time after the earth had achieved a 1,000-year peaceful reign. But these Adventists saw from the Bible that the prophecies indicated that Jesus would return before the 1,000-year period, not after it. Then in 1901 came the Pentecostals out of the Methodists. They saw the church as being too formal and that there was a need to have the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which they say is only evidenced by speaking in tongues and performing signs and wonders. The next branch in our family tree comes in 1830, the Mormons. They came into existence when a man called Joseph Smith finds some golden plates with some strange inscriptions on it, and he translates these into what's become known as the Book of Mormon. And this Book of Mormon is believed to replace the Bible because the Bible that you and I have is corrupted. What's interesting is is that these golden plates, which are the basis of the translation of the Book of Mormon, have never been seen by anybody else other than Joseph Smith. The next branch in our family tree comes in 1870, the Jehovah's Witnesses. They came out of the Congregationalists and the Baptists with their focus being on outreach. And then around 1880, the Salvation Army came into existence with a heritage from the Methodist Church. And just out of interest, the Willow Creek come from the Congregationalist family and Hillsong come from the Pentecostal family. Now, once again, if you'd like to see a visual, an infographic of this family tree, I've prepared one for you. So if you text this code word, hash FE24 info, all one word, no spaces, hash FE24 info, text that to 04 That's 04 The SMS bot will send you a link to the infographic, which will really help you visualize this theological family tree. So you see, every time there has been a split in the family tree, it has always been over how the Bible has been understood. And the fundamental reason of why there are so many different denominations is because of the impact of biblical hermeneutics. Well, let's take a short break now, but when I come back, we're going to dig deeper into hermeneutics. What is it? How does it work? And what's the impact of it? And don't forget to stick around to get today's code word for the e-guide for today's topic. I'll be right back after this with The Faith Experiment. 
The Faith Experiment is made possible because of people like you. If you enjoy what we are doing, please consider supporting us by making a donation on our website at faithfm.com.au slash donate. When peace like a river attendeth my way When sorrows like sea Billows roll Whatever my life Thou hast taught me to say It is well, it is well with my soul It is well to The Faith Experiment with Robbie Bergen, right across Australia, right here on Faith FM. Welcome back to The Faith Experiment. I'm Robbie Bergen, and this is episode 24 of The Faith Experiment. And I'm calling this episode, The Impact of Biblical Hermeneutics. And coming up is today's code word for today's e-guide on the topic of biblical hermeneutics. 
So before the break, we took a whirlwind tour of history by looking at the theological family tree. And we've seen that there have been numerous splits of the faithful over the past 3,000 years or so. And each time these splits take place, it's because of a disagreement of how to understand the exact same part of the Bible. And this is how today we've ended up with those 40 plus thousand denominations who are all just sort of splinters of these original family tree. And so the question is, why are there so many differences? And we've already seen it's basically because of the Bible. But I'd like to suggest that the real problem is, is because of this one sentence. Now, if you have a pen and paper nearby, I'd encourage you to pick it up and I want you to write down this sentence because this sentence is the real problem as to why we have so many different Christian denominations. Are you ready? You got your piece of paper and your pen? Here's what I want you to write down. You ready? Here it is. Write down, I saw the biggest trunk today. That's it. Write that down. Here it is again. I saw the biggest trunk today. Now, I can hear some of you saying or thinking, what are you on about, Robbie? What's this sentence? I saw the biggest trunk today. How is that the real problem behind all the theological families? Well, I'm so glad you asked me because you are going to help me answer this question. You see, on the piece of paper you just wrote down, this is what I want you to do. I want you to write down, what does this sentence actually mean? What does the sentence, I saw the biggest trunk today, what does that mean? I'm going to give you 15 seconds thinking music to write down your answer or to come up with your own answer if you're driving your car. What does it mean, I saw the biggest trunk today? Okay, so are you done? What does the sentence mean? Have you written it down or have you come up with your explanation? Now, I've done this exercise enough times with enough groups all over this world to know that there are the same kind of answers to this question. So here's what I would normally hear. And if you got this, congratulations. If you got something different, text it to me on 0488 I'd love to see what you came up with. But here's what I generally hear. Some say that this sentence, I saw the biggest trunk today, means that I saw the biggest suitcase today. Now, that's what one group of people normally would say. Another group normally says, I saw the biggest trunk means I saw the biggest trunk of an elephant today. Other groups will say, I saw the biggest boot of a car today. And still others will say, it means that I saw the biggest trunk of a tree today. These are the typical responses I get back from groups as I ask this question. Now, this statement could be interpreted a number of different ways without understanding the author's actual intent. And if this simple sentence was a Bible verse, we would have just created four different denominations based on this one verse. We would have created a church that believes a trunk is a suitcase. We would have created another church that believes a trunk is an elephant. We would have created another church that believes a trunk is the boot of a car. And we would have created another church that believes a trunk is the trunk of a tree. 
And so the question is, in our example, hypothetical as it is, which of these four churches is right in their understanding? Because this is the same problem we have today. Today we have the exact same problem in Christianity. Some Christians believe God wants female pastors. Others believe that God does not want female pastors. Some Christians believe that the Bible teaches same-sex marriage is okay. Others believe that the Bible teaches that same-sex marriage is wrong. Some Christians say we should support abortion, while others say we should oppose it. Some Christians say that the Bible teaches we can overcome sin. Other Christians say we can never overcome sin. Some Christians say we should drink alcohol. Others say the Bible teaches we should not drink alcohol. Today, we have the same splits taking place in Christianity. And again, we're all using the same 66 books of the Bible, made up of the same revelation from God given through inspiration. And so the question is, what is going on? Well, if we take our sentence, I saw the biggest trunk today, and ask the question, which of these four views is correct? The right answer has to be based upon context. You see, the reason we just came up with four different views of this statement is because we jumped straight to, and I have to be honest, I kind of tricked you into doing this. You see, I forced you straight into interpreting this sentence because I asked you the question, what does this sentence mean? And because I asked you that question, you automatically jumped into interpretation mode. But because you have no context, you are bound to be making assumptions in what you think the sentence means, thus creating four, if not more, different views of the same passage. You see, what I should have asked you when looking at the sentence is, what did the author mean when he wrote this? But instead, I asked you, what does it mean? And so what I basically did to illustrate here is that I broke a theological rule that every Christian almost by default will break when they come to studying the Bible. Because what we all end up wanting to do when we read a passage of the Bible is we want to jump straight to what does it mean? We want to interpret it before we actually understand what did the author mean. For example, here are some of the questions that we should have asked Before we asked, what does it mean? We should have asked, number one, who wrote this sentence? That's what we should have asked first. Because does it matter who wrote a passage in Scripture? Of course, ultimately, God wrote the Scriptures. But we've already seen that we got these written words of the Bible through a process of the prophets being inspired to use their own language, their own culture, and their own time to communicate to us. And so about this sentence, today I saw the biggest trunk, it would make a huge difference if this was written by a Thai person or an American person or an Australian person because a Thai person could be talking about the trunk of an elephant. An American person could be talking about the trunk of a car, whereas an Australian might be talking about the trunk of a tree. So asking this simple question, who wrote this passage, starts to give us context. The next question we should have asked is, well, when was this passage written? Because sometimes words can change meaning over time. And so knowing when a word was written helps us understand how that word was used at the time it was written. Another question could be, where did they write this statement? 
Or, what was the culture of the author of this statement? Or, who was the audience of this statement? And, what other clues are in this statement? You see, each of these questions provide answers that help us get closer and closer to the original author's intent of the statement. Now, this might seem so basic, but the vast majority of us Christians, we just just about always ignore all of these questions. We jump straight into, what does this verse mean? You know, I've lost count of the number of people over the course of my time as a Christian who have come up to me and asked, Hey, Robbie, what do you think this verse means? My response is always, wrong question. The question should always be, what does this verse mean to the author? Because after all, that's all that matters, right? I mean, I could make a verse mean anything I want it to mean. So, have I confused you all yet? I certainly hope not. It's just good sense that we need to understand what something means to the author before we can understand what something means to us. Now, what we've been doing is a process called hermeneutics. Say that with me. I love the sound of this word, hermeneutics. Now, what is hermeneutics? Well, it's just a fancy word which means how to interpret a passage. We'll still take a short break now, but when we come back, we'll continue looking at this process called hermeneutics, the process of interpreting a message and what is its impact. And don't forget to stick around to get today's code word for the e-guide on today's topic. I'll be right back after this with The Faith Experiment. If you have enjoyed this episode of The Faith Experiment, please help us get the word out by sharing our podcast with your friends and family. And don't forget to like us on Facebook. I can feel when my mind starts to creep into doubt On the days when the strength in my heart's giving out There's a light but it hides from me deep in the cloud There's a voice that I need but I don't hear a sound It's inevitable 
This is the Faith Experiment with Robbie Bergen, right here on Faith FM. Welcome back to the Faith Experiment. I'm Robbie Bergen, and this is episode 24 of the Faith Experiment, which I'm calling the Impact of Biblical Hermeneutics. And coming up is today's code word for the e-guide on today's topic. Now, in this episode, we've been talking about the impact of biblical hermeneutics. We've seen how already that how we interpret the Bible or what we think the Bible means has a massive implication on our worldview. We've seen how that differences in understanding biblical meaning has created more than 40,000 different Christian groups. We also saw before the break that just taking a simple sentence and by asking ourselves what does it mean sets us up for putting our own assumptions into the text. And if we look at our example text we've used before the break, we created at least four different churches on the interpretation of the word trunk. And so now we want to explore this word hermeneutics. The word hermeneutics comes from the Greek word meaning to interpret. It is the science of interpreting a message. Hermeneutics is the way we interpret what something means. And we all use hermeneutics whether you realize it or not. There are two types of messages that we receive daily. There's the nonverbal messages and the verbal messages. And both of these messages require interpretation. If you think of the verbal, let's say your wife is talking to you and she says something like, can you go to the store, lay down the mulch, wash and wax the car and get the kids at school, rent some DVDs, and can you help me finish off the rest of the dishes? Now, you need to think about what was just said and interpret what that means. And as the old saying goes, most men interpret that sentence as, go, lay down, and get some rest. You see, whenever there is a message, there is a need for interpretation. So that's the verbal interpretation. But now, nonverbal interpretation is equally as important. When you pick up a book, whether it's a chemistry book or a mechanical book or any kind of book, you need to be able to interpret the message. For example, I used to be an engineer, so for the engineer-minded people out there, imagine you picked up a book, and let's say it says, take out a torque wrench and tighten to 5 newton meters. Now, you have to know what that means in order to arrive at the author's original meaning. If you pick up a sledgehammer, you're not going to arrive at the author's intended outcome if you don't understand his message. And with the scriptures, there is no difference. The problem is that for most Christians, we just accept the meaning based on what someone's told us. You're a follower of Jesus, aren't you? Of course, we say. Then this is what you're to do, and this is what you're to believe. And generally, for most of us, we respond, Ah, okay. So when we talk about interpretation or hermeneutics in the context of Bible study, we're talking about nonverbal biblical text. And to really help you to become a Greek expert today, I'm going to give you two more Greek words. Exegesis and eisegesis. Now, neither of these words have anything to do with Jesus. They're just Greek words. One word means out and one word means in. So exegesis means to draw the meaning out of the message, while eisegesis means to put the meaning into the message. So when we looked at the passage before the break, 
Today I saw the biggest trunk. And you all came up with your meaning of that passage. Which method of interpretation do you think you all used? Did you use exegesis? Did you draw the meaning out of that passage? Or did you use eisegesis? And did you put the meaning into the passage? Well, you'd be right if you said eisegesis. We all put our own meaning into that passage. And the impact of our hermeneutics was that we created four new trunk churches. So which method do you think we should be using when we study the Bible? Which method do you think the Bible student should always be striving for? I'll give you a hint, exegesis. And we should shun eisegesis like the plague, because if we don't shun eisegesis, we'll end up creating 43,000 different denominations. So let's have a look at what this actually means. I've already said that exegesis comes from the Greek word meaning to draw the meaning out of the passage. The basis of this is it asks the question, what did the author intend for his original readers to understand? Whereas on the flip side, eisegesis comes from the Greek word meaning to put a meaning into, which means we interpret a text or a portion of text in such a way to introduce our own agenda or our own bias. Now let's look at some examples of eisegesis, which is putting our meaning into the text. Now, none of you listening would ever want to put your own meaning into the scripture, right? Of course not. I mean, that just sounds absolutely crazy. But the reality is we do it, and we do it all the time. You see, we all have desires, we all have traditions, we all have wants, and we often go into the scriptures saying things like, I think this is true, let me find scripture to support it. Here are some clues that we might be doing eisegesis, putting our meaning into the text. When we're talking about the scripture, and when we say things like, you know, to me, or, you know, for me, this passage means something, this terminology is actually a clue that's revealing that we're seeing the passage of truth in a very subjective manner. What we're basically saying is, for me, or to me, this passage means something. Which implies that if someone else reads it, they might arrive at a different understanding. Another clue might be when we use expressions like, you know, I feel that this passage means. This expression means that our understanding of the text is very fluid. Because it's based on how I feel. And we all know that feelings change over time or change based on our moods. And so too will our understanding of the text. Another clue that we might be in danger of eisegesis is when we say things like, I think this passage means. When we talk like this, what we're actually saying is that we're using logic to arrive at a meaning. And most of the time, this is done without any contextual study. And so the meaning becomes, once again, very subjective, just like in our example before the break. And one more example of a clue that you might be in danger of eisegesis. When we ask or are asked questions like, what does this passage mean to you? Now, this is so common in group settings like Bible study groups or small groups, because we're jumping right into interpretation without any groundwork. 
Now, to be clear, there are three stages to Bible study, which I'm going to talk about in upcoming episodes. There's an observation stage, there's an interpretation stage, and an application stage. Now, oftentimes when we ask this question, what does this passage mean to you? What we're thinking of is application. What is the application of this passage to you into your life? And that's perfectly fine. Because generally speaking, the Bible passage only has one meaning, and that is what the author was trying to communicate when he communicated it to who he was communicating it. But for all of us, there is a way to apply this to our own lives. And what that application might look for one of us may not be the same for the other, but the original meaning is still the same for all. But if we're talking about meaning or interpretation, We're implying by this kind of question, what does this passage mean for you? We're implying that the meaning of the passage for you can be different to me, which again leads us back to our 40,000 different churches. So that's a quick introduction to eisegesis. Eisegesis is putting our meaning, our understanding into a passage. What about exegesis? Well, exegesis is asking, what did this passage mean to its author? What did it mean to the original audience? And very importantly, what did the original author expect the original audience to do? You see, exegesis cuts the me out of the interpretation process. It removes me from it because I'm not asking what does it mean to me. I'm asking what did it mean to the person who wrote it. And so here are a few examples of how eisegesis has impacted our understanding of the Bible and how exegesis restores it. There's a very famous text in Luke chapter 23, verse 43 where Jesus is hanging on the cross, and he's talking to the thief on the cross next to him. And Jesus says to the thief on the cross, it says, Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Now, when you look at this text, just about everyone, when they read this text, jumps straight into Jesus mode, and they put into this text what they think it is saying, not what it's actually saying. I'll give you an example. The word Paradise. In this text, Jesus says, you'll be with me in paradise. Most of the Christian world jumps to the conclusion and the assumption that this word means heaven. Therefore, the meaning of the text is is that Jesus is telling the thief on the cross on the day that he is dying on the cross, he's going to go to heaven. But that is completely eisegesis. When you actually look at what the text is saying and what it means, the word paradise does not mean heaven in this passage. It means the Garden of Eden. Jesus used the word for heaven many times in his teachings, but he didn't use it here. He uses the word paradise. Why? Well, Jesus tells us in Revelation chapter 2, verse 7, that in the middle of the paradise of God is the tree of life. Again, a perfect connection back to the Garden of Eden, not to heaven. And then, if we were to ask ourselves, well, where is the Garden of Eden? Where is this paradise of God? In Revelation 22, verse 14, we're told that another name for the Garden of Eden is the New Jerusalem. So if we let the text speak, when Jesus says to the thief on the cross that he will be in paradise, Jesus means that on that day, while hanging on the cross, while he's talking to the thief, he's telling the thief, you can be assured that when the earth is made new and when there is a new Jerusalem coming down from God out of heaven, you will have right to the tree of life. 
which is basically a message of assurance of salvation despite your current circumstances. It has nothing to do with going to heaven or going to hell. Eisegesis puts that into the text. Exegesis draws out the actual meaning. Now, we could go through many other passages of Scripture, and if we apply exegesis to the interpretation process, the meaning is simple, clear, profound, all at the same time. But we have to allow the text to speak, not putting words into the text's own mouth, metaphorically speaking, of course. So in summary, the impact of hermeneutics, the method of interpretation, has been profound and will continue to be profound. One of the main reasons for there being so many different churches is because of the method of hermeneutics that is used. Hermeneutics is just the name given to a set of rules that we use when we try to interpret a text. And there are basically two schools of hermeneutics. Exegesis, which tries to draw out the original author's meaning, and eisegesis, which puts a meaning into the passage. And so the goal in Bible study is to use exegesis, and to always try and understand what the original purpose of the text was. We want to start with the text and then come to an understanding of its meaning. Not start out with a belief and then try to use the text to prove it. And so what does this all mean for the Bible student? Well, hermeneutics shapes our worldview and impacts our belief system. And exegesis allows the text to speak and removes me from the interpretation. Whereas eisegesis often validates my existing belief and overlooks what the author was actually trying to say. And so now, on our journey to understand how to study the Bible, we know the purpose of the Bible. We know how the Bible has been constructed. We know why the Bible has 66 books. We have confidence that the 66 books were validated in the lifetime of the last living disciples. We've explored the translation methods and the sources of the Bibles that we have today in English. We can see and understand the overarching storyline of the Bible. We understand the chapters that make up the Bible story. And we see that there are seven golden threads tying it all together. And now we have our last tool in our toolbox. We understand the method of interpretation must be exegesis, not eisegesis. And so now that we have all of these tools in our toolbox, we're now finally ready to start moving into actually studying the Bible. Now, I mentioned at the top of the show that I have a great little e-guide that I put together on this topic to help you grasp this topic visually. If you'd like to get a free copy of this, you have to text the code word hash FE24. No spaces, one word, hash FE24. Text that to 04888 That's 04888 The Faith FM giveaway bot will reply to you asking for some details and then send you a link to today's e-guide. So text the code word hash FE24. That's the hash or pound symbol followed by FE as in faith experiment and number 24 as in episode 24, all with no spaces. So hash FE24 to 4 
Next time on The Faith Experiment, we're going to continue exploring this idea of Bible study, what it is, how it works, and a whole lot more. And don't forget to give me your feedback. I really do appreciate it. You can text me your comments and questions and feedback on 0488-45311, or you can email me on robbie at faithfm.com.au. I'll catch you next week at the same time right here on Faith FM for the next episode of The Faith Experiment. I'll see you then. You have been listening to The Faith Experiment with Robbie Bergen. Connect with us via text message on 0488 453 11. That's 0488 453 Or send an email to robbie at faithfm.com.au and let us know what you thought of this episode. 